to gather, Lord, to open up your word. Father, to respond to the call of a disciple of Jesus. Deny ourselves to, to pick up our cross and to follow you wherever you lead, Father. May we follow. May we understand the urgency of the hour, the call that is upon us individually and collectively to be about our Father's business, that thy kingdom come, that thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And collectively we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. The kingdom of God is just not a lot of talk, but it's living by God's power. Not just a lot of talk, but living by God's power. Again, we just don't want to be a group of religious people that just do a lot of talking, a lot of works, doing everything in our own strength, holding a form of religion but denying His power. We must remember what the Word of God says. The people that we are to have nothing to do with are those who hold a form of religion but deny God's power. They don't live for God. They talk about God. They, they go to church. They they. they, they do, and they do, and they do, and they serve, and they serve, but there's nothing in them that marks the traits of a true believer, one who's been born again. 
deny the power of transformation. Remember what Jesus said. In order to receive the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And not of the flesh, but of the spirit. And we've been talking a lot over the past months about this confession and the belief that the Bible says that if we believe, if we confess that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God, that He rose from the dead, then we are saved. We are born again. The, the only way that we can even have an understanding of that confession and belief is that our eyes are open, that we are born again of a new nature. That we are now transformed from, from darkness to light. That we once were, but now we are. We just don't want to be a people who just do a lot of talking. And there's no evidence of transformation in our lives. Oh God, help us to abide in Him, to, to know Him, to be His people. And that's something I've tried to keep encouraging us. That you can look from Genesis to Revelation and you get this understanding of who our God is and, and what He has purposed. That He will have a people that He will call His own and in return they will call Him their God. That it just won't be a lot of talk, but it'll be genuine belief and faith that we will live for Him, that we would honor Him, that we would serve Him, that we would love Him. The first and greatest commandment, that we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our body, with all of our strength, with our very being. <laughs> we have died to ourselves. We've been raised up into a new life in Christ. We have taken the old man, the old woman, the old desires. We've nailed them to his cross. We seek to please him. We seek to know him. We seek not to, to gratify ourselves any longer. This is the life. This is the Christian life. A life that is solely in, I mean, in, in rooted and grounded in Christ. There's nothing in of ourselves that can bring this about in us. No matter how much works we do, how much talking we do, it's only through the transforming power of Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that we are born again, that we can distinguish between evil and good. And that I love Scripture, and we've said it a lot here. Scripture tells us that He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. We are not lacking. If you find yourself lacking in godliness, it's not because God is holding anything back. It's because you're not pursuing it. There's still something that satisfies you with the temporalness of life. Oh, but that God would give us a hunger. <laughs> There's nothing of this temporal world that, that, that could ever satisfy us. And so we've got to get beyond the lie that, that this person or this thing or that or this can, can make us whole because it can't. Our wholeness and our completeness only comes through Christ. And this is the good news. This is the good news. This is the hope that we have to share with all that we come in contact with all that we come in contact with to share the good news of Jesus. Again, that we wouldn't be a people that's just a lot of talk, but that we would be a people who are experiencing the power of God, walking in it, living in it, abiding in it, releasing it, <laughs> letting God be God and honoring Him daily. Go to Leviticus chapter 24 is where we're reading today. Chapter 24, verse 1 through chapter 25, verse 46. I don't know about you, but I hope you're getting a lot out of Leviticus. And as we're opening the book today, and as we're reading through the Word, I want you to see 
Again, yet again, it's before us, yet again, uh, the Spirit of God is opening up our eyes to give us even more in depth of, of truth and understanding that God takes His presence serious. <laughs> he doesn't treat it lightly. He doesn't treat His presence as, as common. Like God has holy, God is holy, holy, holy. And remember, he's setting apart these people, this nation for himself. He, he's giving them all the instructions. He, he's doing everything that he is to do to, to, to gain their under, to get them to where they have an understanding of who he is and how to abide in him and how to live for him. That God is enough. Remember, he's delivered them. He has revealed himself. To them. He keeps making provision for them. He's setting them apart so that the other nations would know that He is God. As He did with that nation, He does with us as the church. Us collectively, us individually. <clears throat> You're set apart. You've been born again, not for your own self, but for His purpose. And your testimony of His goodness and of His mercy and of the transforming power of Christ in your life is to make others know that He is God. That He is holy. And so yet again we open up the Word and we're going to see yet again <clears throat> how He takes His presence serious. Are you taking His presence serious? Do you understand the concept of what it is to be holy, to be set apart? Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to keep the lamps burning continually. This is the lampstand that stands in the tabernacle in front of the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron must keep the lamps burning in the Lord's presence all night. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation. Aaron and the priests must tend the lamps on the pure gold lampstand continually in the Lord's presence. You must bake 12 flat loaves of bread from choice flour using four quarts of flour for each loaf. Place the bread before the Lord on the pure gold table and arrange the loaves in two stacks with six loaves in each stack. Put some pure frankincense near each stack to serve as a representative offering a special gift presented to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, this bread must be laid out before the Lord as a gift from the Israelites. It is an ongoing expression of the eternal covenant. The loaves of bread will belong to Aaron and his descendants, who must eat them in a sacred place, for they are most holy. It is the permanent right of the priests to claim this portion of the special gifts presented to the Lord. One day, a man who had an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father came out of his tent and got into a fight with one of the Israelite men. <clears throat> During the fight, this son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name of the Lord with a curse. So the man was brought to Moses for judgment. His mother was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. They kept the man in custody until the, Lord, until the Lord's will in the matter should become clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp and tell all those who heard the curse to lay their hands on his head. Then let the entire community 
stone him to death. Say to the people of Israel, those who curse their God will be punished for their sin. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. Any native-born Israelite or foreigner among you who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Anyone who takes another person's life must be put to death. Anyone who kills another person's animal must pay it in full a live animal for the animal that was killed. Anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury inflicted. A fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. Whoever kills an animal must pay for it in full, but whoever kills another person must be put to death. This same standard applies both to the native-born Israelites and to the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. After Moses gave all these instructions to the Israelites, they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him to death. The Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses, the presence of God, you all, honoring God, you all, God doesn't take it lightly, nor should we, nor should we, and we should recognize what our actions cause. If this blasphemer were, was, was allowed to continue to, to live and continue to go about his business, Others would have recognized it as then it doesn't matter. Now we're not out stoning people to death. But what we must remember is that others see how we're living for God. And how you're living for God will impact their lives. If they see that you're not honoring Him and you're just a lot of talk, that's all it is to them. You're just a lot of talk. His presence means nothing to you. You go along with people who just live as a religious person, who just does a lot of talking, but there's no transforming power in their life. They don't honor God's presence in their life, and you just go along with them, then understand you're just like them. You're just like them. His presence, it means nothing to you. And you say, well, no, that's not true. No, it is true. It is true. You just going along just to go along shows you the callousness of your heart towards the presence of God. Oh, we must wake up. You must see the reality of life. His presence is to be honored. We're to respect Him. We're to honor Him. We just can't let things go. We just came to, you know, oh, it was in a moment. It was a heated come. No, like it, it just can't go. That person should be brought back to repentance. We should hold them responsible. And if they refuse to repent, then turn them over. <laughs> turn them over. But to continue to just to abide, to go along with, to make excuses for, it ruins the testimony of who God is. And what he's done in our lives. We have to understand this. He's the God of justice, you all. And we may not agree with how he does things. But who are we? We're the created. We're, we're just mere flesh and bones. We are not God. He's God. He's God. And he is just and he is right in his judgments and how he moves and what he does. Because he's God. We're not. And again, I know we all like to point our fingers in at, at him and, you know, oh, you're a bad God. <laughs> but he is just. He is right. Like his presence, y'all, it is to be honored. God, that we would understand this. 
says here in chapter 25, and we're reading through um, verse 46. While Moses was on Mount Sinai, the Lord said to him, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you have entered the land I'm giving you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath rest before the Lord every seventh year. For six years you may plant your fields and prune your vineyards and harvest your crops. But during the seventh year, the land must have a Sabbath year of complete rest. It is the Lord's Sabbath. Do not plant your fields or prune your vineyards during that year. And don't store away the crops that grow on their own or gather the grapes from your unpruned vines. The land must have a year of complete rest. But you may eat whatever the land produces on its own during its Sabbath. This applies to you, your male and female servants, your hired workers, and the temporary residents who live with you. Your livestock and the wild animals in your land will also be allowed to eat what the land produces. In addition, you must count off seven Sabbath years, seven sets of seven years, adding up to 49 years in all. Then, on the Day of Atonement, in the 50th year, blow the ram's horn loud and long throughout the land. Set this year apart as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you, when each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own clan. The 50th year will be a jubilee for you, During that year, you must not plant your fields or store away any of the crops that grow on their own and don't gather the grapes from your unpruned vines. It will be a jubilee year for you. You must keep it holy, but you may eat whatever the land produces on its own. In the year of the jubilee, each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors. When you make an agreement with your neighbor to buy or sell property, you must not take advantage of each other. When you buy land from your neighbor, the price you pay must be based on the number of years since the last jubilee. The seller must set the price by taking into account the number of years remaining until the next year of jubilee. The more years until the next jubilee, the higher the price. The fewer years, the lower the price. After all, the person selling the land is actually selling you a certain number of harvests. Show your fear of God by not taking advantage of each other. I am the Lord your God. If you want to live securely in the land, follow my decrees and obey my regulations. Then the land will yield large crops and you will eat your fill and live securely in it. But you might ask, what will we eat during the seventh year, since we are not allowed to plant or harvest crops that year? Be assured that I will send my blessing for you in the sixth year. So the land will produce a crop large enough for three years. When you plant your fields in the eighth year, you will still be eating from the large crop of the sixth year. In fact, you will still be eating from that large crop when the new crop is harvested in the ninth year. Mm -hmm. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis, for the land belongs to me. You are only foreigners and tenant farmers working for me. With every purchase of land, you must grant the seller the right to buy it back. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land, then a close relative should buy it back for him. If there is no close relative to buy the land, but the person who sold it gets enough money to buy it back, he then has the right to redeem it from the one who bought it. The price of the land will be discounted according to the number of years until the next year of Jubilee. In this way, the original owner can then return to the land. But if the original owner cannot afford to buy back the land, it will remain with the new owner until the next year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee year, the land must be returned to the original owner so they can return to their family land. Anyone who sells a home inside a walled town has the right to buy it back for a full year after its sale. During that year, the seller retains the right to buy it back. 
But if it is not bought back within a year, the sale of the house within the wall of town cannot be reversed. It will become the permanent property of the buyer. It will not be returned to the original owner in the year of the Jubilee. But a house in a village, a settlement without fortified walls, will be treated like property in the countryside. Such a house may be bought back at any time, and it must be returned to the original owner in the year of Jubilee. The Levites always have the right to buy back a house they have sold within the towns allotted to them. In any property that is sold by the Levites, all houses within the Levitical towns must be returned in the year of Jubilee. After all, the houses in the towns reserved for the Levites are the only property they own in all of Israel. The open pasture around the Levitical towns may never be sold. It is their permanent possession. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and cannot support himself, support him as you would a foreigner or a temporary resident and allow him to live with you. Do not change interest or make a profit at his expense. Instead, show your fear of God by letting him live with you as your relative. Remember, do not make interest on money you lend him or make a profit on food you sell him. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell himself to you, do not treat him as a slave. Treat him instead as a hired worker or as a temporary resident who lives with you. And he will serve you only until the year of Jubilee. At that time, he and his children will no longer be obligated to you, and they will return to their cities and go back to the land originally allotted to their ancestors. The people of Israel are my servants, whom I bought, brought out of the land of Egypt. So they must never be sold as slaves. Show your fear of God by not treating them harshly. However, you may purchase male and female slaves from among the nations around you. You may also purchase the children of temporary residents who live among you, including those who have been born in your land. You may treat them as your property, passing them on to your children as a permanent inheritance. You may treat them as slaves, but you must never treat your fellow Israelites this way. This is the Lord, you all. Again, he's laying out these instructions. So I want to go over some kind of highlight, some points for you from this reading today. Let's go back to the tabernacle, to the lampstand. That symbolizes the life-giving power of God. The olive oil kept the lamps in the tabernacle burning all night and the loaves of bread were food for the priests. That represents God's continual provision. Oil came to symbolize the Holy Spirit. From Acts chapter 10 verse 38. And Christ fulfilled the image of bread by becoming the bread of life. John 6.35 Old Testament believers enjoyed the presence of God by bringing bread and oil while Christ and the Holy Spirit bring New Testament disciples into God's presence. This action, them laying the hands on the head of that man who blasphemed the Lord, was taken to rid themselves of the guilt they had contacted by hearing his blasphemy. Let's talk about the year of Jubilee. The custom of the Jubilee year reminded the people that though they used terms like my land, our land, the earth really belongs to the Lord. Because of the Sabbath year celebrations and then the year of Jubilee, the Israelites, listen to this, had a calendar mm -hmm. reminder throughout their entire lives that God was the one who supplied their needs, even to the most basic level of land for crops and cattle. The Jubilee year was an equalizing year, a year of restoration, a, of new beginnings. Debts were forgiven, slaves were freed, land was returned to families. 
It was a holy year, a time to give and receive in honor of God's ownership of everything. But sadly, we have no records of Israel keeping this command from God. Thus, one of the first things Jesus did when he began his ministry was to proclaim a jubilee era. Even better than a year. With his coming came release for those who are oppressed and were held captive by sin. And you can look as a reference at Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 21. We live today in a spiritual freedom, in a jubilee, because Christ has came to set us free. Oh, that we would rejoice, you all. Go to Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 31. Oh, we thank you, Father. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 31. One day, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could teach and bless them. I mean, touch and bless them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening... He was angry with his disciples. He said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Then he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on their heads and blessed them. As Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man. I love this verse. Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one more thing you haven't done. He told him, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible, but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. Oh, praise God, you all. Praise God. This young man came to Jesus. And Jesus exposed this young man's heart. He kept the law. He lived a moral life. But he didn't love the Lord, his God, with all of his heart. 
with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his body, with all of his strength, with his very being. His life was of his own. He was self-serving, self-sufficient, not God-dependent. And Jesus knew that. And in knowing that, that's why I love that, that verse, Jesus looked at him and felt genuine love for him. Genuine love. And then Jesus gave him the key to understanding. Go. Sell everything. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. The man had an opportunity to receive what he came to ask for. But he chose to turn and go the opposite direction. How sad. How sad. And then it impacted the disciples so much that they were starting to, to get unnerved by Jesus' very declaration of how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I was reading through commentaries and they were saying back in those days that it's not much different than today. People looked at wealthy people as if they were being blessed by God. Mm. You know, surely they must be blessed. They have all of this. And so they were, the disciples were astounded to hear that. But Jesus laid it out very clear to them. And then that's why they said, well then who can be saved? And I love Jesus' answer. And oh, the hope that we find in verse 27. Humanly speaking, it is impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. And then this understanding of of forsaking everything, you all. That's what I don't understand. I mean, the enemy is working overtime to confuse the religious people. To keep people enslaved to themselves. To to make them self-sufficient. To, to hold on to, to families, to hold on to possessions, to hold on to those and to things that would hinder God's will for their lives, that would disrupt them loving the Lord their God with their very being because they're loving all these others and, and these other things. And yet somehow we think that's godly, putting our families before God, putting our possessions before God, and God is not pleased with that. You don't see that in Scripture anywhere. Like nothing and no one is to be before your God. Your love for God is first and foremost. And that just needs to sink in. Because lives and calls and and ministries are being affected and disrupted because everyone else is busy with everyone else. and everything else, and the call of God remains unfulfilled. Because others and things are before God. And Jesus himself says, and Peter was quick to say, well, we've given up everything. And yes, and in that you will be rewarded. But did you miss what one of the rewards was? Persecution. Persecution. So before you start getting, you know, elated about all the, 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 the blessings that are going to come your way, understand part of your reward is persecution. Let's be read by that quickly. But oh, but look at the promise after that. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. This is what it's about, you all. This earth is not our home. This temporal life is not all there is. And so we must have this understanding and this concept that we are born again. We're living and we're thinking differently. We're not allowing people, whether it's family or friends, to keep us shackled back here to the temporalness of life. We're not allowing things and possessions to keep us shackled to this earth. No, we are different beings now. And we're to live differently by honoring our God. Go to Psalm chapter 44, verse 9 through 26. Psalm 44, verse 9 through 26. 
listen to the words of the psalmist. But now you have tossed us aside in dishonor. You no longer lead our armies to battle. He's talking about God. This is what he's crying out to God. You make us retreat from our enemies and allow those who hate us to plunder our land. You have butchered us like sheep and scattered us among the nations. You sold our precious people for penance, making nothing on the sale. You let our neighbors mock us. We are an object of scorn and diversion to those around us. You have made us the butt of their jokes. They shake their heads at us in scorn. You can't escape, I'm sorry, we can't escape the constant humiliation. Shame is written across our faces. All we hear are the taunts of our mockers. And we see our, all we see are our vengeful, vengeful enemies. All this has happened, though we have not forgotten you. We have not violated your covenant. Our hearts have not deserted you. We have not strayed from your path. Yet you have crushed us in the jackal's desert home. You have covered us with darkness and death. If we have forgotten the name of our God or, or spread our hands in prayer to foreign gods, God would surely have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. But for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? We collapse in the dust, lying face down in the dirt. Rise up. Help us. Ransom us. Because of your unfailing love. Wow. The tone of the psalm changes drastically. The remembrance of past victories and the present reliance of on God's strength do not result in victory. Israel's army is defeated and the psalmist expresses a sense of abandonment. The glory that would have belonged to the Lord is now re reversed. And the enemies of Israel mock God's people. The psalmist is deeply troubled because Israel has been faithful. Defeat amid a disobedience would make sense. But defeat despite faithfulness produces despair and confusion. It would make sense that they weren't faithful in doing what they were called to do. But if they're in a season where they're honoring God and they're doing as they should, and yet they're experiencing such great defeat, it is causing despair and confusion. It doesn't make sense. The psalmist never arrives at a solution to his conflict. That's important to understand. He couldn't make sense of what was happening. But this is the good news. Remember I always told you when you're reading through the book of Psalms, what are you to do? It teaches us to what? Look up. Look up. Chaos all around us. There are seasons in life where nothing is going to make sense. It can get really to a place where you can get weakened and you can grow to despair and be distraught and discouraged. But don't remain there. Look up. The psalmist didn't get an answer to his conflict. But his faith in God remains. The psalmist employs battlefield language. Wake up, rise up. Perhaps because the war was still raging. 
So he used this language to move God to action. And he grounds his appeal for help in God's covenantal, unfailing love. Did you see how it ended? Look at verse 26. He's pleaded his case. We see the utter confusion and and mess that they're in. It was a very dark time. They were being slaughtered. Ransom us because of your unfailing love. Oh, what we can learn from this psalm and from this psalmist. That we would remember his covenantal love. His promises. We are in covenant with the living God. We may not understand or get the answers that we're seeking. But one thing we can is to continue to abide in him, to trust in him, and to remind him that we are in covenant with him. And that we know that his love endures forever. And that God, even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of seasons of of darkness and despair, God is still God. He is faithful. He will see his through. His will will be done. Go to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 20 through 21. Two nuggets of wisdom today. Proverbs 10, verse 20 through 21. Oh, how we need wisdom, you all. The words of the godly are like sterling silver. The heart of a fool is worthless. The words of the godly encourage many, but fools are destroyed by their lack of common sense. Oh, that we would be those who are godly. That we would not be a fool. One who thinks there is no God that just lives recklessly and however they want. Their end is always destruction. They're not wise. So also be careful of of, of counsel that you're getting from people. If they're not godly, if they're not living a life and and, and by the transforming power of God, then you, you you don't need to receive any wisdom from them because there really is actually no wisdom to be found there. It's just foolishness. It's just folly. Everything just leads to destruction. It's the godly that you want to be around. It's the godly that you want to seek counsel from. Not people, again, who just hold a form of religion that do a lot of talking, but people whose lives have been truly transformed by God. Not because of what they've done, but all because of what God has done. See, God is great, you all. And God is good. And he is just. And he is worthy to be praised, you all. This is our call as Christians to go forth each and every single day and bring glory to our God, honor to our God, not to get swayed or, 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 or to get pulled away, but to remain grounded in the assurance of who our God is. Amen? Let's close with this last song of worship, and then I'll close this in prayer. Yes, Lord.